James holds in front of my mouth. I close my eyes as a bitter sweetness floods my tongue. Only you, I say, can make me take that. You're a goat. <laughs> You're an old goat. That's what you are. <sighs> Okay, Nicole. Hi, Bim. <laughs> Have you got that out of your system or is there more to come? No, no. You have to creep that out. <laughs> oh, bless your heart. Now, listeners may notice a slight difference in the way we sound this week. And I don't just mean the germs clogging up our various systems. Uh, Nicole is actually so unwell that she is not in the studio, but she is such a trooper that she is recording this from a secret location deep in some villain's lair somewhere in Brooklyn. Shout out to you, Nicole, because you did this. Yes, I am in a cavern in Flatbush. (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere coughing up my lungs and dying. I'm so Um, sorry. I'm so sorry. It's okay. The thirst must go on. It must. And you know what? Never have I seen it in such action. Look at you. The thirst must go on. (laughs) You're like an old school theater director. My darling's the show must go on as you hack a lung discreetly into a potted palm you're doing amazing we're very proud of you and we are very thankful and we are gonna power through this episode so that you can get some more fluids no not that kind you're gonna get some fluids and you're gonna get some rest is that good yes it sounds fantastic all right let's jump right into today's episode uh nicole now you and i and our producer share we did something last week that really animated today's episode, did it not? Absolutely. We went to see Cyrano de Bergerac starring James McAvoy. Ooh-wee. Now, (laughs) okay, so we're going to get to Cyrano. But the key thing is we were animated strongly by James McAvoy. He was the person that we went to watch. Of course, Jamie Lloyd, respected theatre director, the whole thing, National Theatre Live, it's great, blah, 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 blah. But the real key to our venturing out on a cold, wintry night in Brooklyn was to go and see James McAvoy. And the reason why is James McAvoy has been at the forefront of our thirsty imaginings for a good number of years now, right? Yes. I mean... I can't remember the first time that I saw him, but I just know that whenever it was, I was like, I have to keep my eye on this man for the rest of my life. <laughs> That's a tall order, man. <laughs> life expectancy is high. You're like, until I die, this guy. <laughs> I know I know exactly what you mean. I had a very similar, I remember for sure where I first saw him. It was years and years and years ago on a TV show called Shameless, which has now been remade in America and has gone on for a lot longer than it ever did in the UK. But he was on there with his um, now ex-wife, Anne-Marie Duff, who is also an amazing, astonishing theatre performer. And in that, I'll never forget this, he was playing uh, an Englishman from London. He was called Steve, I think. And he had like a proper little London accent. And... Later on, when I found out that he was actually Scottish, I remember kind of thinking, oh, my God, what? Like, I was genuinely taken aback by it because he was like this kind of slightly posh dickhead from London. And I was like, oh, yeah, know him. No many, no many men like him. 
And then I heard him speak in his native accent and I was just like, oh my God, Jesus Christ. I know they couldn't have made you Scottish for reasons, but I wish they'd let you keep this. Oh my God, he's so hot. He is so hot and I wish that he could keep his Scottish accent for everything. Like Same. it's just so <laughs> beautiful to me. <laughs> Anyway, so yes, so Shameless was the beginning and then there's like a number of movies that he went through like a big period of being nominated for everything and anything and then he has like a couple of comic book franchise in there. He has like the serious, you know, the indie stuff. He has like the weird phase and so on and he's growing still but we're going to get into all of this. So Nicole, grab something to soothe your throat and let's begin. Let's go. All right, Bim, I think now that I've thought about it some more, I mm-hmm. think the first time that I really glommed onto him was The Last King of Scotland. Interesting, interesting. Okay, I see. I can see already where the logic is, and I already love you for it. Go on. <laughs> um, yeah, so The Last King of Scotland, he stars in it with Kerry Washington and Forrest Whitaker. Mm-hmm. He played a character, Nicholas Garrigan. Mm. very young you know guy trying to figure out his place in the world he spins the globe and figures wherever he lands is where he's gonna go and he lands on uganda right and he goes there he ends up a part of idi amin's court i guess i, yes. I don't know I think I think it's fair to call it a court, yeah, because that's yeah. basically the kind of shit he was running back then. Yeah, and then you know um, Nicholas begins this relationship with Carrie Washington's character, who is one of the wives, and uh, that's when I saw that this man, that James McAvoy, might be one of the best on-screen kissers I have ever seen in my life. Okay, so like you, I had a a moment where I was just kind of like, oh my God, this guy is so good at everything he does. And in that movie, he's playing this fictional character, like you said, he's he's not real. He has been kind of imagined for the book and the subsequent film. But he's he's quite green, isn't he? So he's not he's not immediately an attractive prospect. Like when we first meet Nicholas, he's kind of just like slightly dweeby. You know, is doing a fine line in that sort of white privilege that means you can spin a globe and be like, wherever it lands, that's where I'll go. And you end Mm -hmm. up in fucking Uganda. But like, there's something that switches in him where suddenly you think to yourself, I don't know why, but I'm drawn to this guy. Like, there's something about him. And that is 100% down to James McAvoy's portrayal of him. Yeah, like, even though he was very baby-faced, you know, he was very, you know, still relatively young um, at the time, he always has this um, level of seriousness to his roles. Like, he, you can tell that he um, he wants to make sure that he is performing to the best of his ability and that he has taken care with uh, researching. At least that's how it feels to me, mm. you know, as, as someone watching, that he has researched, that he has made sure that he understands the context of the character that he's playing and of the script and all that kind of stuff. And it just comes across in everything that he does. Even when he's, you know, playing something, as we'll get to a little later, playing some a character like a Professor X, right, this mutant that can... Uh, control minds or whatever it is that Professor X can can do but it's just like he always um, he always brings this level of 
expertise, you know, yes. to his characters. Yes, yes. You you look at him and you think, you know, you know that wonderful video slash gif of Patrick Stewart where he pretends to be asleep and then he suddenly jerks awake and he goes, mm-hmm, acting. There is something <laughs> that there's something of that. I mean, without the the ham element that, you know, Patrick Stewart is doing in that scene. But there's something about McAvoy that makes you think, God, he's he's killing it because he comes out the other side where it doesn't show that he's acting. It feels like he has embodied the character. And so by the time you come out of it, you feel like you've been in a trance watching him. And then you come back to yourself and you wait, 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 what? Huh? That was, huh? I've been transported. Like, it really feels, it feels like watching him at his best when he's at the height of his powers. It always feels as though I know his face, yes, but he doesn't feel like an actor to me in those moments. He feels like himself. And I I was interested years ago, he said in an interview that um, if he hadn't become an actor, he might have become a priest. Mm-hmm. Right. And a part of me thought, I get that. There's something about him that invites confidence. There's something about him that invites you to kind of take a look and to trust him. Um, yeah, which would have worked really well. Of earnestness to him. Yeah. Like he's, yeah. he's got those big eyes and he wants you to kind of, you know, it does feel a little bit confide in me. Like, yeah, absolutely. There's something solid about him. For someone who is so slight, there is something very solid and grounded in him that I always appreciate when I when I watch him on screen. So, I mean, I said, you know, Shameless was the first thing I saw him in. Of course, uh, Watch the Last King of Scotland loved it. And yes, Professor X was his thing. And I, th- I always found that interesting. I brought up Patrick Stewart quite by accident. But like, for the longest time, I think in many people's imagination, um, from the comics we read as kids or the TV shows we watched, Professor X is an older man who is bald and he uses a wheelchair. And the idea of him as a young man, it genuinely never even entered my mind. I always just assumed that Professor X had been born at the age of 65 <laughs> found a wheelchair, uh, designed it so it said X on the wheels, and he just carried on living his life. It never occurred to me that at one point he had been a boy and then a young man. And then when they announced the casting and they cast him as Professor X and then they cast uh, Michael Fassbender as his best friend slash, you know, nemesis, Magneto. And I thought, oh, yeah, I guess they were young men once upon a time. And (laughs) (laughs) the thing that got me was instantly, I, for the first time in my whole life, my whole X-Men watching life, I thought, oh, shit, Professor X is sexy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I I wouldn't say that for myself. I thought that Professor X, according to the uh, 90s cartoons that I would watch, I thought he was kind of hot, even though, you know, I wasn't a big fan of the bald head, but I always thought that he was kind of hot. But... Like you, it was kind of like, oh, huh, he was a young person at some point, right? So to right. see James McAvoy cast as this person, um, it was a little bit of a shock. I had to get used to that. Yeah, I mean, the shock wore off very quickly because I was excited to see, you know, this this actor who is so good at doing these serious kinds of, you know, slice of life roles and thinking about, you know, class and Britain and this, that and the other. And he's playing uh, a mutant (laughs) who can read minds. And I was like, all right, let's see you bring your Shakespearean training to this young man. And then he did. And I was like, oh, yeah, James McAvoy, he can do anything. He can do most things like, sure. All right. But I was very kind of there's a couple of bits that that really kind of made sure to me that they were trying to kind of remind us that, hey, you may know 
old Professor X, but let's tell you about this young one. And there's a there's a bit in the first in the first installment that he did. He he takes a lover um, and it's played by Rose Byrne. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, I don't know how, but I got the strong sense that Professor X was doing what needed to be done. OK, oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> she was prepared to throw herself into the line of fire. And I was like, it must be bomb. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's my view of what James McAvoy brought to Professor X. He put some fire in those wheels. And I was like, you know what, fam? I'm into it. I'm into it. I'm here for it as well. And I think that kind of goes back to just James, um, that earnestness that that we talked about, this um, empathy that he puts into his characters. Um, Mm -hmm. And it reminds me, just to go back to Last King of Scotland, he did an interview um, around that time. Last King of Scotland came out around 2006, 2007, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he did an interview around that time where he expressed his concern about one of um, the partners that he had in this particular sex scene, who was a Ugandan woman. And he was... um, talking about, you know, trying to make sure that she felt okay being the only person um, from Uganda in this scene while all these Western people, um, which I think is basically him saying all these bunch of white people watch Mm -hmm. her perform this scene. So I want to play a little clip from that. She was worried, yeah, she was really worried that that we would actually have to do more than we would have to do. And do more than just simulate, you know, which which was, you know, broke my heart really. She's in this room with all these Westerners and she's the only one there from her country and we're all sitting there looking. Do you know what I mean? It's just horrible, a horrible situation to be in. Well then, again, I mean, the bar is underneath the ground, but isn't it nice when somebody appears to think of other people? Yes, yes. And I feel like he just brings that into all of his roles that, you know, hopefully he does anyway, that he's just trying to make sure that the people that he has to work with in scenes, um, you know, that the cast and crew are all comfortable with what's about to happen. And yes, the bar is in hell, but it's still just, um, you know, he was a young, he was still a young actor at this time. And so for him to want to make sure that his part, his scene partner felt safe and secure, um, you know, at, at this early stage of his career, I feel like that's significant and that we should, you know, just you know, give him a little hat tip. Not a cookie, but, you know, here's a here's a hat tip. A little hat tip. That's, I love the bar. It's kind of like, not a cookie, not a full cookie, not even the crumbs of a cookie. But we see you, we acknowledge this one thing, good sir. Um, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that that happened very early on in his career. Like, I haven't necessarily seen like a lot of, interviews where he's kind of shown a similar level of awareness or he's thinking about this stuff, but it does kind of speak really well of hopefully something that he carried on doing. I want to kind of reach back a little bit also because um, there's a film that I know that a lot of, a lot of people really love that he did, uh, again, towards the beginning of, of his career. So this was around, let's say, uh, 2006, perhaps. So this is pre- this is pre kind of atonement and, you know, but it's post, it's definitely post Last King of Scotland. It's, part, it's post Starter for Ten. And it's a movie called Penelope. Oh, it's such a sweet little movie. It's a very sweet little movie. It was a, it's a kind of a weird little movie. It's mm-hmm. a romantic comedy that's also a sort of a fantasy. And it stars, uh, obviously, good Mr. McAvoy and Christina Ricci, who 
by the way, where is she? She was something special. I hope she's mm. fine wherever she is. I hope it's a, a self-inflicted uh, uh, distance from Hollywood as opposed to something awful. Anyway, in this movie, um, Penelope, who is Christina Ricci, she essentially has a, a sort of a family uh, curse, essentially. they it, it manifests as, I think it's fine to give the spoiler away, they have the face of a pig. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... She basically has this thing that she has to hide and there's somebody on her tail who's trying to kind of figure out, you know, basically to expose the family and the love interest in this is Mr. McAvoy and he's very, very sweet. Um, And he's just, I don't know, the movie itself is not as successful as I would have liked it to have been in terms of like conveying all the stuff. But I was charmed nonetheless. And a good deal of that charm, of course, is down to Christina Ricci. But a good, good amount of it also is from James McAvoy, who is kind of perfect in this movie, you know? Yeah, I really, I, I saw this movie many years after it first came out. And I was surprised that no one had forced me to watch it sooner because it, I thought it was just really good and really sweet. And James McAvoy's character, um, and you know, he was a little... Uh, a little darling, kind of, in a little way. (laughs) He was a darling. And I think there's something about, I think there's something, it keeps going back to it. He's kind of weirdly soft-eyed. He has, he he reminds me of like a cow's eyes. And I don't mean that in any way disrespectfully. I mean, they are big and they are full of feeling. Mm -hmm. And, and he knows how to deploy them. Like he does a very good laser stare he does a very good kind of soft-eyed kind of like just wants to hold you kind of look. He does kind of like intense kind of like he does he does petrified really well. Like every time I think about him like playing scared or like full of adrenaline, I am all the way on board. Even if the surrounding film is ridiculous, as is the case with Wanted or Split or anything else. I'm just kind of like, you know what? I believe you. You're going to take me on a ride, James McAvoy. And I'm ready to kind of go with you. And I like how much of that is present in in Penelope. But all these other movies, he gives you so much. He's like a he's like a gem, multifaceted. And everywhere you look, there's a new James McAvoy emerging. And I'm always interested. I think he is one of the most phenomenal eye actors uh, in recent years because, like you said, he can give you intense, just all, across all the emotions. I, I feel like if you were to um, have him in the shadows so only his eyes were lit, mm-hmm. you would be able to recognize his eyes. You would be able to know that's James McAvoy and he is giving me you know, longing. He is giving me hatred. He is giving me whatever he's yeah. trying to emote through his eyes because he is so fucking good yeah. with his eyes. Like, he doesn't have to say anything. You just got to zoom in, get up close on his face, and it's all there. Yes, I. that's 100% accurate. I feel like you've really zeroed in on the thing there. But if we do have to bring in his voice, if that is absolutely part of the deal, what a voice he has. Oh, my gosh. It's so rich. Mm-hmm. It's exactly. so rich. And he modulates it like an instrument. So you get like it feels like, yeah, he has this one voice box, but he can make it do everything. 
So to go back to what you were saying about how he can give you longing, he can give you yearning, he can give you rage, he can give you hatred, his voice. Now, first of all, of course, there is the matter of his accent. He is, of course, a Glaswegian and uh, he has the accent of the area, which we are grateful for. Shout out to diversity of accents. But also, it's actually the timbre of his voice as well is something quite special he does this thing when, and it's not, he doesn't do it for all the roles, but you notice it when he does. Whenever he's playing kind of caught up in the sort of rage situation or an anger or some kind of like deep passion, he does this thing where he bites out the words. Mm, yes. In a way, like he's kind of piecing out the sounds. Like he's giving you, it's full of glottal stops. It's full of, it just, it, it transports you so effortlessly. Like it's aim. Is for you to hear every single sound in each of those syllables. And your takeaway is, oh, I know what he's saying and I know what he's feeling. And to do that with just your voice, you can imagine him, like, again, to do the opposite where you take away everything but the voice. You're left in no confusion. There is no, you, you, you know exactly what he's trying to transmit because he is that skilled with using his voice to, to kind of, to tell you what he needs to say. It's kind of remarkable. Yes, and I think um, we can use an example from Cyrano, the the play that we just saw, as as the prime example of this. Because, I mean, that was one of the things that made me realize, okay, I need to go see this. At first, I wasn't really interested in going to see the play. Like, I wanted to go see it because it's him, mm-hmm. and you know, Cyrano is a. I think Cyrano de Bergerac is an interesting play to begin with. Um, so I would have, you know, I was like, okay, that's fine. But I don't necessarily, I didn't necessarily feel like the rush to go see it, particularly because the production didn't look like something that um, I would have enjoyed. But then they released this trailer of James giving one of the um, the love speeches from the play. And I was mm. like, oh, I'm going. I'm, I have to go <laughs> see this. And we have a clip from that. I desire you. I write to you. I write for you. I tear up everything. I have a road for you. What about you? All I can say is I want. I want. I want you, Roxanne. And that was the bit when I reached for the cigarette and just exhaled with my full body because, oh my God. Oh my God, it is the pauses, it is the um, breathing of her name, it is like this tremulous little catch to his voice when he says her name at the end. Like he puts all of this, like he just folds it all together. Yes, and there is a moment when he's doing one of that particular love speech when, of course, we're watching in a cinema and they zoom the the, the camera in in small increments so that at the climax of the speech you are in this incredibly tight shot of his face and the beginning of his shoulders and at the time I looked around the cinema um, and I was blown away by how everyone in my row and in the few rows ahead of me were leaning forward 
as though to catch the words as they fell out of his mouth. And after it was done, everyone leaned back and you could hear a group exhalation. Like all of us hadn't been breathing. And then when it was over, we just kind of let out this air in like a massive rush. And I wanted to reach across and hold the hand of the woman next to me. I don't think she would have appreciated it. But I was just (laughs) kind of like so caught up. And to find that I was not the only one, that this had been a communal feeling of all of us watching raw talent just kind of like sweep you up and just like, I felt like I was in this, I thought I was in the theater in London at the time. And all of us were there as well. And like I said, the exhalation afterwards, everyone just kind of was just like, oh my God. <laughs> like it was, it felt like, it felt like we were at church, like a really thirsty church. And it was great. It, it really did. And after the performance, I went, you know, and I looked on Twitter a little bit. And so everyone, because this was um, broadcast across the world, everyone was talking about that speech um, yes. because it was so powerful and it was, he, he was so moving. And it's just, the speech was incredible. Um, and to, to want to have someone talk to you in that way, to confess love to you right. in such a, an evocative manner, oh, it was beautiful. It really was. My friend Karen was watching in London as well, and she, days later, was just sending me little bits from it and just saying, I'm not well. I'm, I'm still unwell. I don't know what to do with myself. This, is, this week is ruined. There's nothing left. And I was like, yeah, same, big same. There's something about just the power of it. And it, again, it's one of those things, I can't stress enough the joy of the communal aspect of it. Because it's the kind of thing that if you're watching it by yourself, at home, on your laptop or whatever, it's like, sure, it's fine, it's moving. But it was this collective movement. Like everyone was just kind of like almost breathing in sync with like the meter of his speech. He has such exquisite phrasing and it's full of so many details that you could probably get a little bit kind of uh, overwhelmed by it. Like the full speech is kind of like, I love you, I need you, I go to sleep thinking about you, I wake up with your voice in my head, I'm writing you letters, I'm tearing them up, I'm humiliating you, I'm idealizing you, I'm undressing you, I'm clothing you, I'm kissing you, I'm pressing you against the wall. Like it's so much information. And at the end of it, it just ends so simply in this... Again, it feels like exactly what you said. You want this exaltation from, from, from a lover where he just says, there is no structure that can make any sense of this. I just want, I want, I want, I want you. And there's something about the purity of that writing all these years later. And it just, it just makes you feel, <laughs> I feel, even now I'm saying, and I feel overwhelmed just at the recounting of it. Mm-hmm. But it just does so much. It does the most basic thing that you want poetry to do. You want it to move you. And James McAvoy said, oh, I will move you. And the speech itself is not even explicit. I mean, the one line that moved everybody was, I undo the tiny buttons at your wrist. Bitch, listen. Listen. Tiny motherfucking buttons. Are you mad, fam? What? Uh. What? He, li- I mean, it is, ah, I, ah. and then after he says it, he says, I'm so sorry, I'm overwhelmed. I wrote that down in my notebook. I was like, bitch, buttons? He said, he said, I do up the tiniest buttons at your sleeve. And then the following line is the real fucking kicker. He says, I embrace your wrist. Now, a wrist is a small thing in the grand scheme of your body. But he says, right. I embrace your wrist. And you think in that moment, he's not talking about your wrist, but he is, but he isn't. And there's just so much. 
in that he says it, I undo, I, I do up the tiniest buttons at your sleeve. And suddenly you think to yourself, God, I want to be a button on a sleeve. Like, it's just this, <laughs> it's so, like you said, it's evocative. And there's no, at no point is he talking about thrusting or the, it's so unexplicit. But the delivery of it is the most sensual thing I have seen on a screen this year or most years. Yes. And that's, I mean, there's so much within what is unsaid. Mm. And I think that's also again, like the pauses of his speech and the way that he just lets his voice kind of sit there yeah. to let you know what else he's really thinking, you know, what's yes. going unsaid. He's just, it's just incredible. It really <sighs> is. And there's, there's a bit for me that really choked me up, which is when he goes to meet Roxanne at 7 a.m. at the coffee house and he thinks a declaration is about to come. And he's excited. He's delighted. He he cannot wait. And he gets there and he finds out, of course, that Roxanne is in love with Christiane and so on. And Roxanne is unaware of his feelings for her. And in, in her excitement to tell him about her love for Christiane and, to, you know, to get him to agree to look out for him, etc., etc., she touches him in the way that friends touch other friends. Mm hmm. And she does this multiple times. It's a very natural movement for her. She is not trying to titillate or anything like that. She is essentially touching her friend and talking to him. And every time her hands grasp his arm, his forearm or his bicep, James McAvoy looks down at Roxanne's hand on Cyrano's arm. And it's always less than a second, this look. And it happens like four or five times. Every time she touches him, he looks down at her hand and he looks up super swiftly. But in that moment, he looks down, he kind of does like a tiny half smile of just like sadness and regret and like utter, utter love. And then it's gone again because he knows that he cannot show that face to her, but he cannot not be moved by her touching him. But he's every time he looked down, my heart clenched. I was just like, oh, Roxanne, you're doing nothing wrong. And it's killing him, you know, like, yeah. oh, my it God, th that got me. It reminds me a little bit of atonement um, mm. when the the fountain scene where um, Cecilia, um, Kira Knightley's character, she has jumped into the fountain to pick up a piece of the um, vase that they've broken right. and like they've had a little tug of war. And so she jumps in and she comes out and of course she's wet and it's a very provocative moment for both of them as they're trying to deny their feelings for each other and all this kind of stuff right. and she runs away back into the house but robbie um james mcavoy's character comes to the water and he barely touches the water as if you've touched her and now i'm touching you so that i can have touched her oh my gosh so and you don't much. see his yes, you don't see his face or anything, but you just see his hand and like the slightest of tremors in his hand as, as he touches the water. Oh, it's yes. so beautiful. It's so and he he this is his stock in trade. Like he gives you these small measured moments that kind of sweep you up. And there is never a mistake as to what he's trying to tell you. Like, it's so clear. It's crystal clear. It's like, it's the it's the cleanest kind of language there is. This kind of like, this, in, this instinctive knowledge of what he's saying to you. 
And I think Cyrano really employed, like I knew he was a star. I knew he had an immense amount of talent, but there's something about this play, I think, that employed him. He got to do pathos. He got to do bathos. He got to do straight up comedy. He got to do a couple of even like fight choreography, which was thrilling for those of us who enjoy that shit. He got to do sort of... uh, he, he he did everything. It was it was kind of like this kind of smorgasbord of stuff that okay, what are James's talents? Why don't we bring everything to the fore? And he just did everything. I I I can't stress enough. And and I thought also interestingly enough for someone who his career is so built on playing these kind of slightly dweeby sort of um you know slight little men who kind of often get caught up in events bigger than them and so on. Of course, this is him after he'd beefed up for the role in Glass, which came out last year. Mm -hmm. And I remember at the time when the first photos emerged of him for that movie, he had like the shaved head and he was like fucking built. Like he'd been living in the gym. His neck was like twice the size it usually is. And he was wearing like this tight T-shirt. And when I saw him come out on stage during Cyrano and he was wearing essentially this same costume like a black t-shirt black jeans black boots and he had like this little slender this little puffer jacket as well a part of me just thought well it's nice that you've been in the gym james i cannot say that i don't like it and i thought the fact that he was playing this soldier this by all accounts this kind of aggressive big fighter sort of wildly passionate poet soldier it kind of worked and his physicality when he was on stage when he was kind of, and the way he made himself almost small and different when he was next to Roxanne. And in every other scene, he was this puffed up big soldier man with big with the words and all that stuff. But every time it was about Roxanne, he would kind of fold himself into a sort of whatever you want, I'm yours. You know, like he became malleable for her and only her in a way that I found just incredibly moving. I love his little soccer playing thighs. Oh my gosh. He <laughs> he was dressed in all black in Cyrano, like you mentioned, and his thighs look like they could crush me and I want them to. <laughs> just for like five seconds. Just press me. <laughs> it really was something special. And again, he was perfectly attractive before and all bodies are good bodies and so on. But yeah, there's something about just the the solidity to the thighs. I was just like, man, praise God. Won't he do it? I recently saw a movie that he did last year that did not do well at all. And I understand why it didn't do well now that I've watched it called (laughs) Submergence. (laughs) What Um, a perfect backhand of a shot you just delivered. (laughs) Yeah, so I wanted to watch this because uh, someone had posted a gif of him kissing his co-star in that film, uh, Alicia Vikander. And so I'm like, okay, I didn't hear of this movie. What happened? It came out in 2017. It's considered a romantic thriller. Mm -hmm. And... um, you know, I'm going to be honest. It's not good. It, <laughs> it, it is not good. I rented it. I spent $3.99 to rent it and watch it. And I was angry about it. I don't think that I paid any attention to it after the first 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just not great. And so I think, you know, everybody has their duds. Every actor has films, a collection of films that, you know, don't perform well. And maybe they you know, the script didn't 
end up being what they thought it was going to be once it was on screen. Um, So I can't necessarily say that you should go and watch it. But again, it's just proof that he is an incredible kisser. And when they um, are making out, she is the one that's kind of like leading the session. And it goes back to what you talked about, the deference that he has in Cyrano um, and even in Atonement when he's with these um with this love interest that he's plays these characters that let the women um, that he's with kind of initiate and guide the session and guide the interlude between them uh, Mm. in such a way that it's very, it's a very passionate, but delicate balance between them. And it was just a, you know, I'm not going to say find it to watch it just for that scene, but if you happen to like stumble across it, watch it because it's it's very well done and he's very nervous in it it looks mm-hmm. like you know his character it seems a little nervous about what's about to happen which is a little refreshing so it's just um i think that he'd really he knows how to um i don't know just show that it's okay to let women uh to let you know the love interests uh guide him and that it could still be a passionate, fruitful adventure when you just kind of step out of your ego and let someone else take control. I love that. I love that. And I think it's something, what you've identified is something a lot of women have identified with James McAvoy. And there was an interview that he did. Well, he went on to Graham Norton's show um, in the UK and uh, he was on the sofa with Daniel Radcliffe, a.k.a. you know, young Harry Potter. And they were talking about stuff and there was a whole thing around um, interactions with fans. And he's telling the story about this woman that he met at a fancy dress party um, and uh, he basically, anyway, I'll let him tell the story. Uh, do you know that thing where uh, some people make a list of oh, people, famous people that they're allowed to have sex with if they meet them? Oh, the free pass. The free, the free pass. pass, right? Yeah. She called it an allowance. Um, <laughs> uh, and I was like, what, like pocket money? Yeah. Uh, how are you going to spend me? Um, uh, and so. I met her and her fella, and, and then she came up and said, uh, after she went, so you're my allowance. And I was like, I beg you, excuse me. And uh, she went, you, you know, he's cool with it, and you're my thing. And I was like, uh... <laughs> he's not cool with it, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, that's a whole other story. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I was really sort of like taken aback by it, and, and I was like, I'm married, and thank you very much, and it's very, very nice of you. And then she said this thing that was like, it was meant as a compliment, and she was trying to get me to do stuff, but it was still really backhanded. And she went, because, you know, a lot of girls would be after somebody like Channing Tatum. Oh. <laughs> I was like, do you know what? You're not getting it. <laughs> I love that so much. Kind of like, you know what? For that crack alone, you're not getting it. That made me laugh so hard. Well, people, I mean, first of all, man, fans are weird. They just say shit. <laughs> They really do. <laughs> but I love his I love his little thing of just kind of like, well, first of all, thank you very much. I'm flattered, whatever. But anyway, the core of it is really what I what you were saying. I think there's something about him that a lot of women have kind of intuitively gleaned and that he is a okay with just like just taking his foot off the gas and letting you direct things as it were. Um and there's something, of course, as we know wildly attractive about that and again it's not something you can nail down you just feel it and he gives up the feeling 
Yeah, he just seems so intimate. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm grinning into my microphone. I'm just I'm just ready. I'm just I'm smiling at the thought of James McAvoy and intimacy. It's lovely. And I think that really kind of nails down everything that is uh, thirstable about Mr. James McAvoy. He gives you everything you want, but also some of the stuff you don't expect. Mm, yes, I like that. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Cheers. Yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> Nicole, any final thoughts on James McAvoy? Uh, you know, I encourage everybody to go look for the library scene in Atonement if you haven't already, because it is one of the best lovemaking scenes on film ever in life. Wow. And it's yes. <laughs> OK, say no more. That choked sound of Nicole is the final recommendation you need to go find the library scene in Atonement. James McAvoy, we salute you. If you are in America, perhaps you're in New York one uh, week, just pop by the studio. We'd be very happy to receive you. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we have done a very thorough discussion on Mr. James McAvoy, and we have reached the point in the show where, of course, we showcase some of our wisdom in the form of a drabble. Uh, a very short little uh, fanfic segment where we project wildly onto the idea of a thirst object. Nicole, are you ready? I am ready. I'm ready to hear what you've written for today. You know what? I, I don't know what's going to happen with this Drabble. I know that when I started it, I was thinking, what do I like about James McAvoy? And a lot of that had to do with uh, his voice, uh, the idea of what his hands can do. Um and a sort of kind of like an intimacy as, as you know, you yourself have pointed out. There's something about him that feels very intimate. And so that's that was what I had in mind. That was on my mood board when I began uh, tap, tap, tapping away at this Drabble. So I'm going to get into it. And uh, yeah. All right. Let's see what you think. It's week six, James said lowly as he set his satchel down at the station next to mine. He bumped my shoulder with his. And you know what that means. I did know. For weeks now, we'd been playing this game in which I gave him my number in segments, a digit a week, which he would then incorporate into whatever he had made that week. So far, there was a slender vase embellished with sevens, a finger bowl decorated with swirling infinity eights, two squat mugs with sleek silvery threes baked into the glaze. Today I was finishing a quartet of teacups. Mine's an Earl Grey, James had quipped last week, and now I was bent over my table, rolling out delicate worms of clay, discarding the worst of my efforts along the way. Next to me, James was going for something much larger, a fat-bottomed carafe as far as I could see, and he was already focused on his task, wheel-turning, the muscles of his shoulders bunching but still relaxed, fingers loose. So am I to guess the last number, he asked in a low murmur. Or, he added after a pause, will you just give it to me? His voice was a low murmur, competing only with the methodical hum of the wheel. I turned my head to face him, a sly look on my face. I could have given you this number weeks ago, I said. Oh, I know that, he said. But you like this game, and so I do too. He turned his face as he said this, eyes almost gleaming. 
I looked at him. The last number is three, I said. Okay, Bill. I like how you be giving out your number all random. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I like the way that you try to, you know, give your number out in these very clever, unique styles. I you know see what? You. Sometimes you want to just like, you know, zhuzh up the activities. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that was me zhuzhing. I like it. I like it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am very excited to hear what you're doing with James this week. So without much ado, let's get that drabble out of you. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I hurried through the door in time to see James's friends lowering him not so carefully to the couch. He cursed at them, but his speech sounded a bit slurred. I shooed them all out of the way and stuffed a pillow under his broken leg to elevate it. They left quickly, their eyes comically large as they silently relayed those messages men give each other when their stupid stunts get them into trouble with their partners. I put my hands on my hips and turned to take in James, his filthy, bloody soccer uniform ruining my couch, and told him as much. It's a football kit, woman, he growled at me, a hand sliding up my calf. His eyes were glassy from whatever pain meds he'd been given, and whiskey from the smell of him. He tugged me closer, and I just managed to stop myself from crushing him beneath me. James, you've got a broken leg and are high as a kite on painkillers. Now is not the time to be fooling around. My protests grow weaker as he cups my butt and settles me more firmly against the proof that the pain meds had not numbed all of him. (laughs) He nuzzled into my neck. I'll be dead and ashes in the sea before you stop getting a rise out of me. And all my worries melted away. Oh, that's lovely and disgusting. (laughs) I try, I try. You did, you achieved, you achieved. I love that. I love that very, very much. Good work, Nicole. Thank you so much. Well, we've got um, you and James at a pottery class. Mm -hmm. You, You giving out your number. Sure. We've got me playing reluctant nursemaid. Reluctant in quote marks, yeah. (laughs) The thing that we always say, of course, is that there are no losers when it comes to fanfic wars because, yeah, sure, you go onto Twitter on the Friday after we've put out the episode. Sure, you take part in our poll, selecting which of the drabbles most moved you. But ultimately, there are no losers. What you get are two good original fanfic options and you get to enjoy them you get to imagine them you get to kind of maybe even cast yourself in a fanfic of your own and then you select one and ultimately you know there's no prize nicole and i are very aware and appreciative of each other's efforts we're encouragers you know this is a real sisterhood (laughs) where we just kind of go what have you got this week great we'll all eat and that's how it feels so go on to our twitter which is at thirst aid kit on the friday after the show is out and select which is your favorite of the two drabbles but again there are no losers we're all winners all right nicole shout out to you i uh i doff my cap to you for this week's drabble Ah, thank you but i mean your drabble was fantastic as well oh no no you <laughs> Thursday Kit is a Slate production produced by Cher Vincent and us, Nicole Perkins and Bim Adonmi. Our music is by Tanya Morgan. 
You can follow the show on Twitter at First Aid Kit and we are on Tumblr at firstaidkitpodcast.tumblr.com. We appreciate all of our thirsty live tweeters. If you want to join in, please use the hashtag TACPOD, that's T-A-K-P-O-D, or you could write us an email at thirstaidkit at slate.com. If you want to use our Thirst Sommelier service, please just send us a short, and we mean really short, message. The number is 510-984-4778. That's 5109-THIRST. Non-US Thirst Buckets can send us a short voice note via email at thirstaidkit at slate.com. You can find all of our episodes and links to listen at slate.com slash podcasts. We've started doing bonus segments that are just for Slate Plus members. Basically, it's an extra dose of Thirst Aid Kit every single week. To listen, you'll have to join Slate Plus, which is Slate's membership program. For just $35 for the first year, you'll get a little extra from this show and all other Slate shows. Plus, there are no ads. And you'll be supporting the work we do here at Thirst Aid Kit. So please head over to slate.com slash thirstaidplus to sign up for these premium sips. We'll be back next week. Uh, We hope that Nicole's lungs go back inside her body. And make sure you tell a friend about Thirst Aid Kit. We do all this work and we love you for listening. And the only way we get bigger is you telling other people. So in the meantime, stay thirsty. Bye. I see. I can see already where the logic is and I already love you for it. Go on. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) The thirst did too much there. I'm sorry.